You're listening to Gruesome and Unnatural, a true crime podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Gruesome and Unnatural. I'm Shelly. And I'm Eric, and this is episode 59. Yeah, hello, my gruesome addicts. Thanks for joining us for another episode. This is a wild ride we're going to take right now. You ready for this, Eric? Yep. All right, so I'm going to tell you about two men in the story first and how their lives came together. So Lawrence Sigmund Bideker was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on September 27th, 1940, as the unwanted child of a couple who had chosen not to have children. He was placed in an orphanage by his mother and was adopted as an infant. Lawrence's adopted father worked in the aviation industry, which required the family to frequently move across, you know, around the United States throughout his childhood. But Lawrence got into a lot of shit when he was younger. Let me tell you about that. So Lawrence's first arrest was for shoplifting at the age of 12, in which he obtained a minor criminal record over the next four years after further arrests for like the same offense in addition to, like, petty theft, which brought him to the attention of, like, authorities, pretty much, juvenile authorities, because he was very young. Like I said, he was 12 years old when this first happened. Lawrence would later claim these numerous theft-related offenses committed throughout his teenage years had been attempts to make up for the lack of love he received from his parents. It was reported that Lawrence had an IQ of 138, but he was absolutely, he absolutely hated high school, so he ended up dropping out in 1957. By this stage in his life, Lawrence and his adoptive parents were living in California, Within a year of dropping out of high school, he had been arrested for car theft, a hit and run, and evading arrest. These offenses, he was in prison at the California Youth Authority, where he remained until he was 18 years old. After being released, Lawrence discovered that his adoptive parents had actually disowned him and moved to another state, and he never would see them again. I know, so he was kind of getting abandoned here and there. That's fucked up. I know, I know. Within days of his parole from the California Youth Authority, Lawrence was arrested for transporting a stolen vehicle across state lines. In August 1959, Lawrence was sentenced to 18 months in prison to be served in the Oklahoma State Reformatory. Later, he was uh, transferred to the Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri, to serve serve the remainder of his sentence. In 1960, Lawrence was released from prison, and within months of his release, he had been arrested in Los Angeles for robbery, and in May 1961 was sentenced to 15 years. While in prison for this robbery, he was characterized by a psychiatrist as being highly manipulative. The psychiatrist also described Lawrence as, quote, having considerable concealed hostility, unquote. Lawrence was released on parole in 1963 after serving two years of that sentence. In October 1964, he was again put in prison for parole violation. <laughs> so he just in and out of prison. 1966, Lawrence underwent further examinations by two independent psychiatrists, both of whom classified him as a borderline psychopath, a highly manipulative individual unable to acknowledge the consequences of his actions. Lawrence explained to one of them that his criminal activities gave him a feeling of self-importance, although he insisted that the environment and his upbringing made it harder to resist committing crimes. Lawrence was prescribed antipsychotic medication, and a year later he was released back into society yet again. A month after his parole in July of 1967, Lawrence was yet again arrested and convicted of theft and leaving the scene of an accident. He was sentenced to five years in prison, 
um, but he was released in April 1970. In March 1971, Lawrence was again arrested for burglary. Due to repeated parole violations, he was sentenced to serve between six months and 15 years in prison in October 1971. But three years later, what do you think happened? He was released from prison again. 1974, Lawrence was arrested for assault with attempt to commit murder after he stabbed a young supermarket employee who had accused him of stealing. The supermarket employee had observed Lawrence stealing a steak and followed him outside into the parking lot. And that's when Lawrence, like, and then he asked, you know, Lawrence, like, hey, did you forget to pay for that steak? And then Lawrence decided that he was going to stab him. So he stabbed him in the chest, like, barely missing his heart. He attempted to flee, but he was quickly, like, caught by two other employees. That employee, his name was Gary Louie, he survived the stabbing and Lawrence was convicted of the lesser charge of assault with a deadly weapon and was sent to a California men's colony in San Luis Obispo. So now we're going to talk about Roy Norris. Roy Lewis Norris was born in Greeley, Colorado on February 5th, 1948. His father worked in a scrapyard and his mother was known to be like a drug addicted housewife. He occasionally lived with his parents throughout his childhood and teenage years, but he was repeatedly placed in the care of foster families throughout the state of Colorado. Roy's childhood memories were mostly of like wrongful accusations while living with his biological parents and being neglected by many of the foster families that he had lived with, frequently being denied of like food and clothes, which is just so sad. <laughs> he also claimed to have been sexually abused when he was in the care of a Hispanic family, later stating that the prejudice he held toward Hispanic people originated from the neglect and abuse he endured as a child when he was placed in the care of this family. While living with his birth parents at the age of 16, Roy visited the home of a female relative who was in her early 20s and began speaking to her in a sexually suggestive manner. She ordered him to leave her house and informed Roy's father, who threatened to beat him. Roy then stole his father's car and drove into the Rocky Mountains, where he attempted to commit suicide by injecting pure air into an artery into his arm. Damn. I know. I know. He was later caught, like, as a runaway, pretty much, and returned to live with his parents, when he returned home, Roy's parents told him that he and his younger sister were unwanted and that they were going to, like, and that when they were going to divorce, like, later on, when they reached their teenage years, like, they were just, like, letting them know, hey, when you guys reach your teenage years, we're going to divorce each other. So it's like, that's so fucked up to tell a child, right? Yeah. I don't know. When I read that, I was like, what the hell? A year later, Roy dropped out of school and joined the United States Navy. He was stationed in San Diego in 1965 and was deployed to serve in the Vietnam War in 1969, although he did not see active um, combat during his four-month tour of duty. He was eventually honorably discharged from the Navy after one tour of duty. In November 1969, Roy was arrested for his first known sexual offense. He was charged with both rape and assault with attempt to commit rape. In those incidents, he had attempted to force his way into a car of a woman. She was in her car by herself. Three months later, in February 1970, Norris attempted to mislead a woman into allowing him to enter her home. And so when the woman refused, he attempted to break into her house. The woman called police and he was arrested and he didn't you know, harm her whatsoever. In May 1970, Roy who was out on bail at this time, attacked a female student whom he had been stalking at San Diego State University campus. Roy repeatedly struck her on the head, like in the back of the head with a rock until she slumped to her knees before he repeatedly beat her like head against the sidewalk. Shortly after Roy was arrested with assault, you know, for assault with a deadly weapon, he was committed to five years in prison at a Tescadero State Hospital where he was classified as a mentally disordered sex offender. 
he was released from this state hospital in 1975 with five years probation, having been declared by doctors as an individual who was of, quote, no further danger to others, unquote. Joke. <laughs> Just three months later after his release, Roy approached a 27-year-old female walking home from a restaurant in Redondo Beach and offered her a ride on his motorcycle, but she declined. So Roy parked his motorcycle, grabbed the woman's scarf, twisting it around her neck before informing her that he was intending to rape her. And he drug her into the nearby bushes, fearing for her life that she didn't like resist, you know, this rape. Although the rape was reported to police, they were initially unable to find him. And uh, but it was like a month later that the same woman observed Roy on his motorcycle, saw the same license plate number, and she went to police immediately. Roy was arrested for the rape one year later, and he wasn't he was tried and convicted for these offenses and sent to California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo. While car, while that same. Yeah. Same jail as the other dude. Yep. Mm, see where it's see coming it. together? Okay. Yep. While incarcerated at the California men's colony, Roy met and befriended Lawrence. Mm-hmm. Knew it was coming. Mm-hmm. Bad, two bad people come together. Two bad people. Two bad people. <laughs> Lawrence and Roy initially were just like acquaintances. It was, this is 1977, uh, one year after Roy arrived at San Luis Obispo. Lawrence said that his initial impression of Roy when he arrived there was that he was like a savvy individual who was largely largely associated with hardened criminals from motorcycle gangs in addition to dealing um, like drugs and stuff. The two actually became a lot closer when Roy taught Lawrence how to make jewelry. I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> According to Roy, Lawrence saved him from being attacked by fellow inmates on at least like two different occasions. They also discovered that they shared an interest in sexual violence, with Roy also telling Lawrence that he loved seeing frightened young women, and that that's the main reason why he pretty much has a lengthy record for sexual offenses. Weird. Disgusting. Lawrence, who is known to have like committed sexual offenses prior to meeting Roy, himself told Roy that he, if he ever raped a woman, he would kill her so as to not leave a witness to the crime. When the two were like... Ever alone, they would discuss plans to assault and murder teenage girls after they were released from prison. This shared fantasy involved into like an elaborate plan to murder one girl of each teenage year from the ages of 13 to 19. Wow. I know. They're just disgusting. So they actually promised each other that they would become like reacquainted after they were both released in order to go, you know, go on with this plan. Lawrence was released from the California men's colony on October 15th, 1978. He returned to L.A. and found work as a machinist. He became friendly with several people in his neighborhood, earning a reputation as a generous and helpful individual who occasionally donated money to the Salvation Army. Wow. Yeah, one time he even purchased a large quantity of fast food and wine, and he went around to, like, all the homeless people in downtown L.A., like, just giving them fast food and wine. <laughs> Lawrence was particularly popular among, like, the local teenagers, he later admitted that the main reason he always had beer and marijuana in his like Burbank motel that he was staying in was so that way he could have teenagers around like all the time. Gross. Because that's disgusting. Yeah. Just a sick fuck. They're both disgusting. <laughs> Three months after Lawrence was released from the California men's colony on January 15th, 1979, Roy was released from prison and moved into his mother's home in Redondo Beach. Within one month of his release, he had raped a woman and then abandoned her in a desert. He did find employment as an electrician in Compton, and shortly thereafter, he received a letter from Lawrence. The two met at a hotel and decided to obviously go on with their plan to rape and kidnap girls and be disgusting. 
So in order for them to abduct teenage girls, Lawrence decided that what would they need? The most creepiest van they could find, right? Always a fucking van. So Roy and Lawrence together bought a silver gray 1977 GMC Vandura van in February of 1979. And I'm going to post pictures of this van because it's exactly probably what you're thinking. <laughs> this vehicle was windowless on one side and had a large passenger side sliding door, right? Of course it yep. is. So according to Lawrence, when viewing this sliding door, he realized he and Roy could, quote, pull up a teenage girl real close and not have to open the door, the doors like all the way, unquote. The two nicknamed this van Murder Mac. Wow. Yeah. From February to June 1979, Lawrence and Roy picked up over 20 female hitchhikers, but they didn't assault these girls. It was practice for them. They wanted to practice like in order to like lure these girls and see how easy it would be and also to like go around different like secluded areas, you know, around the area so they can take them there and mm-hmm. Obviously, we know what they're going to do. So the two found an isolated fire road in the San Gabriel Mountains. Lawrence broke open the locked gate with a crowbar and replaced the lock with one that he had owned. And this is where we're going to talk about their first victim. Lawrence and Roy killed their first victim, 16-year-old Lucinda Lynn Schaefer, on June 24, 1979. Lucinda was last seen leaving a Presbyterian church meeting in Redondo Beach. Lawrence and Roy had just finished constructing like this fucking bed in the back of the van so it's perfect timing for them right so beneath this were like tools clothes and a cooler that was filled with beer and soda at approximately 11 a.m the two drove to quote the beach area drinking beer smoking weed and flirting with girls at approximately 7 46 p.m roy spotted lucinda walking down a side street toward her grandmother's house and remarked to lawrence there's a cute little blonde After unsuccessfully attempting to entice Lucinda into their van with alternative offers of, like, marijuana and giving her a ride home and stuff, Lawrence and Roy drove further ahead and parked alongside a driveway. Roy then exited the vehicle, opened the passenger side sliding door, and leaned into the van with his head and shoulders kind of, like, in the van, Mm -hmm. you know? So you couldn't really see, like, his face. But when Lucinda passed the van, Roy exchanged a few words with her before he dragged her in the van and closed the door. And this is something that they repeat, repeat in like most of what's to come. So Lawrence turned the radio to full volume as Roy bound her arms and legs and gagged her with duct tape. Lawrence drove her to the fire road in the San Gabriel Mountains where he, uh, you know, had, this, you remember he changed the locks and everything like mm-hmm. that. So he was able to get in there now and drove her over there. Despite initially screaming when she was abducted, Lucinda like composed herself. She was like, I don't want to piss off, you know, these guys even more probably. I'm assuming that's what she's thinking. Um, In his written account later on of that night, Lawrence wrote that Lucinda, quote, displayed a magnificent state of self-control and composed acceptance of the conditions of which she had no control. She shed no tears, offered no resistance, and expressed no great concern for her safety. I guess she knew what was coming, unquote. That's so fucked up. So fucked up. At the fire road, Roy first raped Lucinda after telling Lawrence to, quote, go take a walk. And return one hour later. Upon returning to the van, Lawrence raped her as well. Lucinda asked Roy whether they intended to kill her, to which Roy replied, no. In response, Lucinda requested to be allowed to t- allowed time to pray before she was killed, if that was their int- like true intentions. Later on, Lawrence and Roy gave differing accounts as to who argued over whether they should kill her rather than, rather than releasing her. Each of them stated that they argued that they should kill her. Lucinda pleaded for only a second to pray before Roy attempted to strangle her, 
After approximately 45 seconds, he became disturbed at the look in her eyes. So he ran to the front of the van. He stopped and he just ran to the van, front of the van and started throwing up. Lawrence then manually strangled her as she collapsed to the ground and began convulsing. He then twisted a wire coat hanger around her neck with vice grip pliers until Lucinda's convulsions uh, ceased. Lucinda was denied her request to, pe- to pray before Lawrence and Roy ended up killing her. Lucinda's body was wrapped in a plastic shower curtain and thrown over a steep canyon. According to Roy, after Lawrence had thrown Lucinda over the canyon, Lawrence assured him, quote, the animals would eat her up so there wouldn't be any evidence left, unquote. So we're going to get to the next victim, Andrea Joy Hall. On July 8th, 1979, two weeks after the murder of Lucinda, Lawrence and Roy encountered 18-year-old Andrea hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway. As the two slowed the van down to offer Andrea a ride, another vehicle pulled over and offered Andrea a ride as well, which she actually accepted. So she didn't get in the van with them. So thank God, right? Yeah. But Lawrence and Roy followed the vehicle from a distance until Andrea exited the vehicle in Redondo Beach. Roy hid in the back of the van in order to trick Andrea into believing Lawrence was traveling alone. Inside the van, Lawrence offered Andrea a cold drink from the cooler. Like I was talking about, they had the beer and the soda and stuff. So Roy had hidden behind a bedspread in the rear of the van, jumped on Andrea when she, you know, attempted to get the drink. And after a struggle with one another, he managed to overcome her, twisting her arm behind her back, causing her to scream in pain. Roy then gagged Andrea with adhesive tape and bound her wrists and ankles. Lawrence and Roy drove Andrea to a location in the San Gabriel Mountains, farther than they had actually taken Lucinda. At this location, she was raped twice by Lawrence and once by Roy. While, while Lawrence was raping Andrea for the second time, Roy saw that he, what he believed to be like headlights coming towards them. So he, uh, Lawrence put his hand over Andrea's mouth and dragged her into like into the near bushes, nearby bushes, as Roy drove to find this vehicle. But he, there was no vehicle. He couldn't mm. find anything. When he returned, the two drove to the location farther in the San Gabriel Mountains. Lawrence forced Andrea to walk uphill naked alongside the road and then to perform oral sex on him before ordering Andrea to pose for several Polaroid pictures. Lawrence and Roy drove Andrea to a third location where Lawrence again walked Andrea up a nearby hill, this time as Roy drove to a nearby store to buy alcohol. When he returned, Lawrence was alone and in possession of two Polaroid pictures that he had taken, both of which depicted Andrea's face and expressions Roy later described as being of sheer terror as she begged for her life, pretty much. Lawrence informed Roy that he had told Andrea he was going to kill her and challenged her to give him as many reasons as she could to come up with as to why she should be allowed to live. Before he thrust an ice pick through like her ear into her brain, and then he turned her body over and thrust the ice pick into the other ear, stomping on it until the handle broke. Jesus Christ. I know. Oh, God. These guys are fucking pieces of fucking shit. I know. And it gets so much fucking worse. Oh, this is... I know. Lawrence then strangled Andrea before throwing her body off a cliff. These two, I know. They're the fucking worst. Oh, it gets so much worse. Okay, so we're going to move on to the next two victims. On September 3rd, Lawrence and Roy saw two girls named Jackie Doris Gilliam and Jacqueline Leah Lamp sitting on a bus stop bench near Hermosa Beach. Jacqueline and Jackie had been hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway when Lawrence and Roy saw them as they were sitting at the bus stop. Lawrence and Roy offered the girls a ride, which Jackie and Jacqueline accepted, unfortunately. Inside the van, both girls were offered marijuana by Roy, and they accepted. 
Shortly after entering the van, both girls realized that Lawrence had actually steered the van off of the PCH and was driving in the direction of the San Gabriel Mountains. When the girls asked where he was going, both Lawrence and Roy gave the girls excuses, you know, which trying to throw him off, right? So Jacqueline was only 13 years old. She had actually attempted to open the sliding door, but Roy hit her on the head, on the back of the head with a bag filled with like weights. And this knocked her unconscious for a little while before he overpowered 15-year-old Jackie. As he began to bind and gag Jackie, Jacqueline regained consciousness and again attempted to flee the van, but Roy twisted her arm behind her back and dragged her back into the van. As this struggle ensued, Lawrence stopped the van, punched Jackie in the face, and assisted Roy in finishing binding and gagging the girls. Jackie and Jacqueline were driven to, yet again, the San Gabriel Mountains, where they were held captive for two days. Fuck. Being bound and gagged, you know, between repeated instances of sexual and physical abuse as well. God, I fucking hate these guys. Both men slept in the van alongside the girls, which they would, you know, one of them would sleep, one would be like on the lookout, and then they would swap. On one occasion, Lawrence walked Jacqueline onto a nearby hill and forced her to pose for pornographic pictures before returning to the van. Lawrence also asked Roy to take several Polaroid pictures of himself and Jackie, both nude and clothed, you know, with clothes on. In the first of three instances in which Lawrence raped Jackie, he also created a tape recording of himself raping her, forcing the girl to pretend that she was his cousin. That's fucking weird. How weird is that? Yeah. What the fuck is yeah. And informing Jackie to feel free to express her pain. Just the fact that he made this fucking tape disturbs the shit out of me. So Lawrence is also known to have tortured Jackie by stabbing her breasts with an ice pick and using vice grip pliers to tear off part of one of her nipples. Jesus Christ. After almost two days of captivity, Jacqueline and Jackie were ultimately murdered. Roy claimed that he had suggested that Jackie be killed quickly, as unlike Jacqueline, she had been very cooperative throughout the period of her captivity, whereas Lawrence replied, quote, no, they only die once anyway, unquote. Jackie was struck in each ear with an ice pick and then strangled to death. After Lawrence had murdered Jackie, he then forced Jacqueline out of the van. Upon ex exiting the sliding door, Lawrence shouted to her, quote, you wanted to stay a virgin, now you can die a virgin, unquote, before Roy struck her upon the head with a sledgehammer. Lawrence then strangled Jacqueline until he believed she had died. When Jacqueline opened her eyes, Roy again bludgeoned her repeatedly as Lawrence strangled her to death, and the bodies of Jacqueline and Jacqueline were thrown over an embankment. Like, I wonder if they never met each other. I'm sure they still would have done. They were already doing it before they met each other. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, true. But just but to, like, like this to have extent, two evil uh, people, yeah, it'd be, it's probably even more of an extent. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so not like the other victims weren't There's horrifying. I know, we're not horrified. This one just gets me, and it's just fucking horrible. Okay. This so. is the last podcast I'm ever going to do. <laughs> I'm surprised you made it this long. This is fucking, I'm getting pissed off and disgusted and just. I had a feeling you'd get really pissed off this one. This kind of shit just sticks in my head. And, I know. That's you know, I'm I'm pissed off at you now. I know, but I love you. Okay. Anyways. Mm. <laughs> okay. So Lawrence and Roy abducted their final victim, 16-year-old Shirley Lynette Ledford, on October 31st, 1979, Halloween night. That's why I kind of chose this one, because there was one that happened. I was wondering, like, I thought we were going to do October episodes and stuff, yeah, like, no, or uh, yeah. Halloween, and then, like, I'm just yeah. like, you just throw all I, this shit at me to fuck my head up, and... <laughs> I'm sorry. 
I know. This one's so horrible. It's so bad. Oh, okay. I've always heard this hear one. But, okay. <laughs> All right. So Halloween night, 1979. Shirley was abducted as she stood outside a gas station hitchhiking home from a Halloween party in Sunland, Tahanga, suburb of Los Angeles. Investigators believe Shirley accepted a ride home from Lawrence and Roy because she recognized Lawrence as he was known to like frequent the restaurant in which Shirley uh, worked like part time as a waitress at. Upon accepting the offer of a lift home and entering the van, Shirley was offered marijuana by Roy, which she actually refused. Lawrence drove the van to a secluded street where Roy drew a knife, then bound and gagged Shirley with construction tape. Lawrence then traded places with Roy, who drove for an hour as Lawrence remained with Shirley in the back of the van. After removing the construction tape from her mouth and, and her legs, I guess, he had put it on her legs, for like maybe he tied her legs together, Lawrence like tormented Shirley, initially slapping and mocking her, then beating her with his fists as he repeat, repeatedly shouted for her to, quote, say something. Then as Shirley began screaming, shouting for her to, quote, scream louder, as Shirley continued screaming, Lawrence began asking her um, as he struck her quote what's the matter don't you like to scream unquote Ugh. i fucking hate that as shirley began to cry she pleaded for lawrence repeatedly saying quote no don't touch me in response lawrence again ordered her to scream as loud as she wished then began alternately striking her with a hammer beating her breast with his fists and torturing her with pliers both between and throughout instances like when he was he raped her and sodomized her Repeatedly, Shirley could be heard pleading for abuse, for the abuse to cease and making statements such as, oh, no, no, as sounds of Lawrence getting either the sledgehammer or the pliers from the toolbox. And like you can. So like I was saying, he's recording all this on a tape recorder. That's why they know what she's like saying and what's going on, mm -hmm. because he's fucking taping all of this. Like he's getting off on taping. Like he was saying earlier, right? He wanted to see like frightened young girls or something mm -hmm. like this is what he wanted. So. So, like I was saying, you can hear him, like, he was either getting the sledgehammer or the pliers from the toolbox. You can hear on this tape recorder that he had actually switched on before he entered, the, or when he was entering into the van, the rear of the van. Roy later described hearing screams, constant screams coming from the rear of the van as he drove. Shortly after Roy switched places with Lawrence, he himself switched on the tape recorder that Lawrence had used to record much of the time that, you know, he had been in the rear with Shirley. Roy first shouted to Shirley, quote, go ahead and scream or I'll make you scream. In response, Shirley pleaded, quote, I'll scream if you stop hitting me. Then there was like several high-pitched screams as Roy encouraged her to continue until he ordered her to stop. I don't know why they want her. Like, you know, it's like, isn't that going to get, I mean, not that I'm siding with them, but like I can get them caught. She's going to scream like that, but I guess it's some nasty thing that they like to fucking hear. Watch. Yeah. Roy then reached for the sledgehammer. Shirley, seeing him do this, screamed, oh, no. Roy then struck Shirley once upon the left elbow. In return or in response, she informed Roy he had broken her elbow before pleading, quote, don't hit me again. In response, Roy again raised the sledgehammer as Shirley repeatedly screamed no. Roy then proceeded to strike Shirley 25 times upon the same elbow with the sledgehammer before asking her, quote, what are you crying about? As Shirley continuously, you know, screamed and cried like a fucking idiot. <laughs> After about two hours of being held captive, Roy killed Shirley by strangling her with a wire coat hanger, which he tightened with pliers. Shirley did not react much to the act of strangulation, although she died with her eyes open. Lawrence then decided to get rid of her body on a random lawn in order to see like how the press would react. 
So the two drove to a randomly selected house in Sunland where Roy discarded Shirley's body in a bed of ivy in the front lawn of someone's home. So the next morning, a jogger is running along and finds her body. So after the autopsy, they revealed, in addition to having, you know, been sexually assaulted, she had died of strangulation after receiving extensive blunt force trauma to the face, head, breasts, and left elbow. Her genitalia and rectum had been torn, caused in part by Lawrence having inserted pliers inside of her body. What the fuck? I know. In addition, her left hand had a puncture wound and a finger on her right hand had been slashed. Lawrence would later claim the tape recording the two had created of Shirley's abuse and torture offer nothing other than the evidence of like a threesome, adding that toward the very end, Shirley was screaming for him and Roy to just kill her, which is like horrifying. She was just being that tortured. She was like, just fucking kill me. You know, like, I don't want to be here anymore. You look very pissed off. I am. This is the fucking worst one <laughs> I've ever fucking heard. I know. I think it is the worst we've ever done. I hate this fucking podcast. <laughs> In November 1979, Roy became reacquainted with a friend named Joseph Jackson, in which he had previously been incarcerated with at California Men's Colony. Roy confided in Joseph regarding his and Lawrence's rapings and killings over the previous like five months, including graphic details of the murder of Shirley. Roy also told Joseph that in addition to the five murders he and Lawrence had committed, that there had been three additional incidences in which he and Lawrence had abducted and attempted to abduct young women who had either escaped their attackers or in one instance had actually been raped but released. Upon hearing Roy's confessions, Joseph was like, I'm going to tell my attorney, and that's exactly what he did. And his attorney was like, you need to tell authorities. So he informed the LAPD, Los Angeles Police Department. A Hermosa Beach detective named Paul was assigned to investigate Joseph's claims as to Roy's confessions of the murders, attempted abductions, and rapes that he confided in Joseph occurred between uh, June and October. Paul initially noted that Joseph's statements as to Roy's confessions did not match reports on file of several teenage girls who had been reported missing over the previous five months. In addition, the incident Roy had confided to Joseph, where he claimed he and Lawrence had sprayed mace in the face of a woman who had then been dragged into their GMC van and raped by both men, actually matched a report filed in relation to an instance that, uh, that occurred on September 30th. So in this filed report, a young woman named Robin had been sprayed in her face with mace before being dragged into a van and raped by two Caucasian men in their 30s before being released. Although Robin had reported the abduction and rape to the police, they, had been un they were unable to find out who these two men were. Paul dispatched an investigation to visit Robin at her residence in Oregon to show her a series of mugshots. Robin positively identified two photos presented to her of those two men who had kidnapped and raped her on September 30th, and she identified them as Lawrence and Roy. So upon linking Lawrence and Roy to the rape of Robin, the Hermosa Beach police placed Roy under surveillance. Within days, they had observed him dealing like marijuana. On November 20th, 1979, Roy was arrested by Hermosa Beach police for parole violation. The same day as the Burbank Hotel where he resided, Lawrence was arrested for the rape of Robin. So they're both arrested now. Although Robin had identified mugshots of Lawrence and Roy, she was unable to positively identify them in a police lineup. I thought that was interesting. Either way, police had observed Roy dealing, you know, marijuana, whereas Lawrence had been in possession of drugs at the time of his arrest, so both were held on charges of parole violation, pretty much. A search of Lawrence's apartment revealed several Polaroid pictures, which were determined as depicting Andrea and Jackie, both of whom had, you know, been reported missing earlier that same year. 
Inside Lawrence's van, investigators discovered a sledgehammer, a plastic bag filled with lead weights, a book detailing how to locate police radio frequencies, a jar of Vaseline, two necklaces, which actually were confirmed to belong to two of the girls, and a tape recording of a woman, of a young woman in an obvious distress, screaming and repeatedly pleading for mercy while being tortured and sexually abused. I was gonna let you, I was gonna like kind of do a little transcript of it, but it's just like fucking horrifying to read. They actually haven't come out. I don't. I don't believe they came out with the actual recording, and I would never fucking want to listen to that because that would tear me apart. But you can look up on the internet like the whole transcript of that whole tape, and it's just fucking horror. I started reading some of it. And I, I couldn't finish it. it was yeah, horrible. well, don't don't tell me any of it. I won't. I won't. You've kind of heard a little bit of, you know, just her screaming and all that stuff. But anyway, so the mother of Shirley, named by Joseph Jackson as being one of the girls whom Roy had confessed he and Lawrence had killed, identified the voice on the tape as being her only daughter. Mm. Yeah, the two, the voices of the two men mocking and threatening Shirley in the process of her torture and abuse were identified as being Roy and Lawrence. I just can't imagine. I can't believe she actually listened to it. I mean, I guess to get justice for your daughter and stuff like that. But like, I just can't imagine being hot her having to listen to that and realizing that that is her daughter, you know. Also found in Lawrence's motel were seven bottles of various acidic materials, um, which later on they kind of think that they were going to plan to use that, like, on their victims or something. Inside Roy's apartment, police discovered a bracelet he had taken from Shirley's body as, like, a souvenir. You know, you always hear them taking souvenirs mm -hmm. and shit. Also found at the homes of both Lawrence and Roy were Polaroid pictures of almost 500 teenage girls and young women, most of which had been taken at Redondo Beach and Hermosa Beach, with others taken by Lawrence at a Burbank high school. Most of these pictures had been taken without, obviously without the girls' like knowledge or consent. So they did do a search of the San Gabriel Mountains. Roy led investigators to the bodies of two of the four victims he and Lawrence had murdered at this location. Roy agreed to return to the San Gabriel Mountains to search for the bodies of the girls to, who, uh, to whose abduction and murder he had confessed to assisting in. In each instance, Roy brought detectives to the area where he and Lawrence had, dis had disposed of their victims' bodies despite extensive searches of the area. Uh, the areas where he had stated the bodies of Shirley and Andrea had been discarded, their bodies were never found. On February 9th, 1980, the skeletalized bodies of Jacqueline and Jackie were found at the bottom of a canyon alongside a dry riverbed. The bodies were scattered over an area measuring hundreds of feet in diameter. An ice pick was still lodged in the skull of Jackie, by the way. And the skull of Jacqueline bore multiple indentations, evidence of the numerous like hammer blows Roy had you know, inflicted on her. In February 1980, Roy and Lawrence were formally charged with the murders of the five girls at the arraignment, Lawrence was denied bail, whereas Roy's bail was set at $10,000. Within one month of being charged with murder, Roy had accepted a plea bargain in which he would testify against Lawrence in return for the prosecution agreeing not to seek the death penalty against him. On March 18, 1980, Roy pleaded guilty to four counts of first-degree murder, one count of second-degree murder in relation to Andrea, two counts of rape, and one count of robbery. And on May 7th, 1980, Roy was sentenced to 45 years to life in prison with eligibility for parole in 2000. That's such bullshit. I know. And then he was really, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he was incarcerated at Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility. He died of natural causes at the California Medical Facility on February 24th, 2020 at the age of 72. God, I wish he like got tortured and died a horrible death. <laughs> 
So on April 24th, 1980, Lawrence was arraigned on 29 charges of kidnapping, rape, sodomy, and murder, in addition to various charges of criminal conspiracy and possession of a firearm. He was also charged with two counts of conspiracy to commit murder, dating from December 1979, in which he had unsuccessfully attempted to persuade two inmates due to be released to murder Robin in order to prevent her from testifying against him at an upcoming trial. Damn. He was trying to get her murdered after that. Yeah, I was just like, what the fuck? <laughs> the charges for the rape of Robin would later be dropped because of lack of physical evidence, as well as Robin's failing to identify, you know, like, identify the attackers in the lineup. When asked by the judge as how he pleaded, Lawrence remained silent, refusing to answer any questions. So in response, the judge entered a plea of not guilty on his behalf. On February 17, 1981, after deliberating for three days, the jury found Lawrence guilty of five counts of first-degree murder, one charge of conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, five charges of kidnapping, nine charges of rape, two charges of forcible oral copulation, one charge of sodomy, and three charges of unlawful possession of a firearm. <laughs> Fucking, that's a lot. So deliberation as to whether Lawrence should be sentenced to death or life without parole began February 19th, although Lawrence ended up dying while incarcerated on death row at San Quentin State Prison on December 13th, 2019, at the age of 79. And again, he died of natural causes, unfortunately. He wasn't tortured. Wish he was. I wish they got what they fucking did to these girls. Yeah, that's not how I wish it worked that The system is all set up. It's I bullshit. I it's set up for bullshit. I know. So that's the fucking... Oh, they're dubbed the toolbox killers, by the way, because of these tools they're using and stuff like that. Yeah, Just I get it. Fucking horrible. So that's my story. The toolbox murders. Um, nasty fucks. So yeah, that's the uh, story of the toolbox killers. Fucking horrifying. Thanks. I know. So yeah, rate, review, tell a friend, give us case suggestions, gruesomeandnatural at gmail.com. And thanks for listening until uh, till our next episode. 60. I can't believe we're at 60. I know. That's the next one. So stay safe and be aware. <laughs>